From WUFTFM, this is Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm really happy to welcome back to the program today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Skilarkin. And we're going to be talking today about the manatee, this animal that so many people love and so many people identify with Florida and our area here in the southeast and our coastal waters and our inland waters in the wintertime. And so I'm really happy to welcome you back to the program, Dr. Larkin. Thank you for being with me. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. Um, I, I enjoy talking with you. Manatees are, are cherished and, and much-loved animals. I, I, I would challenge someone to like think about an animal that's uh, native to Florida that has uh, more goodwill uh, directed towards it. People just are really fond of these creatures. Uh, do you have uh, any particular reason that you suspect that may be the case? Well, they're they're definitely very iconic. They're very unique. Um, they they have a lot of um, uh, unique attributes. Unlike um, other animals, they're the only marine mammal that is fully aquatic. Um, so they they're very interesting in that sense. But they uh, they're very um, you know regional. Uh, they they definitely speak to to Florida. Um, and I think a lot of people um, enjoy being able to see such a, a large animal that's generally pretty um, passive and, and easy to visualize. Um, so we have a lot of people who come to the state every year just to, to visit with them. Okay, so you, you mentioned it right off the bat. Uh, this is a, a large animal. I wonder if we can describe the manatee and how... Uh, how it lives, and a lot of just general information about it. First of all, uh, what family is the manatee in? Because it's, it doesn't look similar to other animals that we see around Florida. Right. So they're in the order Sirenia, um, and they're in the genus Trachecus. So the Florida manatee actually has um, uh, a subspecies. Um, so we, we have the, the Florida manatee here within the U.S., um, but then we also have the Antillean manatee, which is a subspecies, and, and that ranges in the Caribbean and Central and South America. Um, so they're, they're all part of the, uh, the same group, um, but uh, they're separated by um, a lot of deep water between us and um, areas in the Caribbean. And are there other manatee species um, around the world? Yes, um, there's the Amazonian manatee that lives um, strictly within the freshwater Amazonian uh, river system. There's the West African manatee, um, and they are similar to Florida manatees in that they can live in both fresh and brackish water. Um, and uh, and then we also have um, the uh, dugong, who is a little bit further relative so they're not a manatee per se, uh, but they're within the order Sirenia, and they live in coastal waters um, along uh, the uh, west coast of Africa. Or, I'm sorry, east coast of Africa, all the way um, along the southern borders of um, like India and uh, the Middle East, uh, all the way over to um, Australia. Wow, that's a that's a pretty big area too. So these animals, they are mammals, right? Mm -hmm. They give birth to live young, and they live uh, in the water. um, And they 
are large when they are adults. You you mentioned their size. About mm-hmm. how how big do they get? So Florida manatees are are the largest um, species of the group. Um, they can uh, range from a thousand to two thousand pounds um, as adults, and um, and part of that um, it's hypothesized is because um, Florida is really in the northern part of their range, so the waters during the winter are pretty cold for them, and so having a a larger body mass helps them to maintain their heat during the winter. Uh, wow. Okay. So uh, you say up to two thousand pounds in. Mm-hmm. in I mean, so, th- so this makes them uh, heavier than, let's say, like a grizzly bear. They're, they're, the manatees are heavy animals. They, the water, of course, helps uh, allows them to weigh that, right? I mean, they don't need to really support mm-hmm. their own bodies um, and, like, walk around. They, they have their buoyancy um, right. that gives them that advantage in terms of getting that weight around. Um, let's talk a bit about the life cycle of a manatee. They... Uh, as you said, they of course they give birth in the water, right? And and what yeah. is what does their life look like? Um, right. So um, a female can be pregnant for um, about a year. Uh, the calf uh, she'll tend to uh, seek out quiet, shallow areas to give birth in. Um, the, the calf, when it's born, uh, is around 60, 70 pounds. So it's a pretty big um, animal when it's born. Um, and much like other um, marine mammals, the tail is kind of folded up um, when it's first born. And mom will um, try to make sure that it can reach the surface and breathe all right. Um uh, for the most part, they have one calf. Uh, occasionally, there can be twins, but they're pretty rare. Um, and oftentimes, um, both of the calves won't necessarily make it. Um, so it's it's a, a, a tough thing to, to successfully rear um, uh, both calves um, if twins are born. Um, animals can live um, up to... Uh, 65 uh, years of age. I think Snooty um, down at the Bradington Museum is the oldest known uh, aged manatee, and I think he was somewhere around 65, 68. Um, I'm not 100% on that. Um, they become mature pretty early, though, um, so they they can become mature around, well, sexually mature around two to three years of age, um, but uh, males will compete for access to females, and um, you'll have um, bull males, so fully mature males competing, um, so that uh, usually means that uh, you don't get access to a female until they're about nine years old. Mm. Uh, Do manatee fathers participate in the rearing of young? No. No, they don't. <laughs> um, so when the when the mother has a calf, she will she'll need to you know care for that animal for a while. And this is a you know as it is with it, any mother who's who's got a nurse, this is a resource intensive process, right? Um, describe what yeah. the nutritional needs of of young manatees and, and how the mothers uh, provide this. Right. So they, uh, the moms uh, will nurse anywhere from two to three years uh, f- 
And um, so uh, about two years, um, mom may be able to become pregnant again after, on average, about three years. Um, The calf learns a lot uh, from its mom in its first year. Um, So some important milestones are... um, uh, where to find uh, warm water, where to find fresh water, how to socially interact with other manatees. Um, and um, and so there's sort of a critical period that calves learn all these things um, from mom. And if something happens, um, if uh, they get separated uh, or if um, something happens to mom, um, occasionally um some of the uh, rehabilitation groups um, will need to rescue a calf that's been um, abandoned or, or gotten lost. And depending upon how small the animal is, um, it may be that much more challenging for them once they reach a sufficient size to be released um, back out to the wild, um, only because they maybe they didn't have enough time to, to learn some of those critical things from from mom before they, they were rescued. So it can be a challenge. What is the social environment like for manatees? Because anybody who has spied them in the wild may have noticed that they're sometimes around other manatees. Do they have social groups uh, with whom they get along and, and have uh, recognized members? Um, not that we're aware of. They're considered uh, semi-social. Uh, so the longest interaction that manatees have is between the mom and the calf. Um, but um, it, it's also very challenging to observe um, social interaction. So it's not like you can, you know, sit on a rock and watch the savanna and, and see how the animals are interacting with each other. So um, being an aquatic animal makes it challenging. Um, but no, they don't seem to um, have any obvious um, regular social interactions, um, but uh, they do have um, very uh, traditional uh, movement patterns. And so um, calves often will use the same um, wintering areas uh, and um, summer areas as uh, their mom did. Um, so there definitely are things that they uh, learn uh, from their mom, and so they're in the same areas. But um, as far as we know, there's no um, long-lasting um, social interaction like like you see in in some uh, whales and dolphins. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, this may be a hard question to answer, but after a calf is is weaned, and you know, let's say this calf is. I don't know, four years old or something, and it has gone kind of on its way. If it makes its way back to an area where its mother has taught it is a is a good area to find food or to go during warm months, is there any recognition between um, uh, an adult offspring and the mother? Um, I would anticipate that there is. Um... Uh, there have been some studies uh, looking at um, the vocalizations that manatees make, and they do make very um, unique uh, vocalizations that could potentially be identified or identify them individually. 
Um, so the possibility is there, um, but I don't know uh, to what extent um, those things have been studied out in the wild. So when we see groups of manatees together in a spot, let's say in a river or something like that, is it mostly that they're just hanging out in the same place and they just happen to be there? It's not necessarily that they're all they're all friends. It depends on the time of year. So um, during the warmer months, you have a lot of animals that are congregating primarily to to stay warm. Um, The winter can be a very stressful time for them because they uh, don't necessarily have uh, as much food available to them. Uh, The seagrasses aren't growing um, and the water temperatures are colder. They they don't have, um, despite the fact that they they look very rotund and hefty, they don't uh, they don't have a very um, insulative layer uh, like blubber like like uh, whales and dolphins have. So they 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 are thick, but it doesn't provide the same <clears throat> level of um, thermal regulation. Um, for them, and so they're they're seeking out warm water during the the winter months, and so you'll have a lot of animals um, hanging out together during those time periods. You'll see them in the springs, <clears throat> as well as some of the um, uh, power plant uh, warm water effluents. Um, during the warmer times of the year, um, when you see uh, a very active group of animals, it's usually a cavorting herd or a mating herd. Um, and usually there's a single female that's uh, the focus of a lot of that attention. So let us say that it is um, a cooler time of year so that these manatees are congregating in a place where they found some warm water. Is it possible to have kind of a mixed sex group, meaning that there'll be some males and they're perfectly content to get along with each other and then with the females if they're sharing these warm waters? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. They're they're trying to conserve their energy, so a lot of them will be resting. It's it's usually the younger animals, the calves or the juveniles that'll be swimming around and and, you know, acting like like kids. Yeah, yeah. But then once mating season rolls around, then it changes the dynamic in these groups. Yes, absolutely. I gotcha. Um, with the thermoregulation that you were talking about earlier, uh, what is the what is the ideal temperature range for manatees so that they can be comfortable and healthy? Um, anywhere from sixty-eight degrees Fahrenheit or warmer. Um, so the springs um, are generally a great place for them to hang out during the winter uh, to stay warm. Um, and, uh, you know, once um, spring comes around and the larger bodies of water like the Atlantic or the, the Gulf um, start to warm up, um, then they'll, they'll go out and they'll uh, start traveling to their, their summer areas where they um, will feed and congregate with other manatees. Where do they like to go during the summer? They leave Florida? Uh, Some do. Um, Some animals uh, can travel quite far. There are some that travel up the East Coast. Uh, Some can go as far as Rhode Island. Um, Other animals can um, travel uh, along the northern end of the Gulf of Mexico and travel out west um, past Alabama uh, and then towards, towards Texas. 
Um, there are a few that have been discovered um, traveling up the Mississippi as well. Did I hear you say Rhode Island? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's a pretty good ways away. And it strikes me because, one, I don't think of manatees as being necessarily the fastest animals in the world. So, I mean, that's a pretty good distance to cover uh, in a season. But, but that also puts them, I would think, at a pretty big risk because they need, would, would need to time their return to make it back before the water becomes too cold for them. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and it's interesting, the, the first animal that sort of showed us the, the extent to which uh, manatees can, you know, essentially marathon their way across, you know, up the East Coast um, was an animal that was named uh, Chessy because he was discovered in the Chesapeake Bay. Um, and they thought, well, surely this animal's lost. Um, he doesn't know what he's doing. So they, they rescued him. They brought him back down to Florida, and they put a tag on him uh, to keep track of him. And sure enough, the, the next winter, he, he went back up on the East Coast and traveled up to Rhode Island. And at that point, it, it was getting cooler, uh, and they were a little concerned about him. And then he lost his tag. And um, luckily, uh, he had marks that they could recognize him. And uh, during the winter, they were able to identify him uh, back in South Florida. So this is a trip that he does pretty regularly. Yeah, that's really remarkable. So let's uh, talk about the diet of these animals, because if they're traveling these great distances, that must mean that they can find the food that they need, even in places that are outside of Florida. What do they eat? Uh, they eat primarily aquatic grasses, um, so they can be both fresh and saltwater um, grasses. And they, they're they pretty generalist in, in what they can eat. Um, they, they eat a variety of different types of grasses, um, but in general, Grasses are relatively low in nutrition and very high in um, in fiber and silicates, and so it's it's tough on their teeth and um, not the highest in nutrition. So they they have a very large um, GI tract, uh, and it takes a very long time for something they eat to work its way through. Um, so whereas most most mammals, um, even elephants, um, something they eat uh, takes uh, 24 to 48 hours to go through their system. Um, manatees can take anywhere from seven to ten days, so they're they're very much a specialist um, in in how they're able to extract the most out of um, what they are eating. Yeah. Okay. So the if the food that they're finding or, or eating is not especially nutritious for them. Uh, is that simply because their options are limited? Is there anything else in their environment that uh, would offer more nutrition? Well, they're they're designed for quantity, not necessarily quality. So, um, And that's uh, something that they do have in common with um, uh you know, uh, other mammals with similar uh, digestive tracts, um, but um, they uh, they're they're very efficient uh, with the food that they they're eating. So um, they 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 do very well with with what's available. And they're strictly herbivores, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there there may be some uh, inadvertent eating of invertebrates that are on the grasses and, and things like that. So they may um, receive some protein from, from those things, but um, that's not... Uh, that's not a primary um, dietary uh, thing that they're after. And is there a nutritional difference or even a, a difference in terms of how the body is able to process grasses that come from salt water and grasses that come from fresh water? How, how does the intake of those two different kinds of water and, and the, the salinity of it affect their digestive systems? Well, it's it's mostly compensated by their kidneys. Um, their kidneys are sort of designed um, to be able to um, allow them to to kind of function like a camel. They they can go for quite a long time um, without um, drinking water, but they they do take advantage of um, whatever water may be in uh, the vegetation that they're eating. Um, any rain. Um, that may accumulate on on top, like a little thermocline on top of um, salt water, um, or uh, swimming up into the rivers uh, to get some fresh water. Mm. I think this is a good place for us to maybe take our first break. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Iska Larkin, and we're talking about manatees. We'll be back with more right after this. Stay tuned. Back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill speaking with Dr. Iska Larkin from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine. We're talking about uh, our beloved manatees here. And we've talked a bit about their their diet. We've talked about their, their reproduction and their, and their raising the young. But I want to talk a little bit more, um, Dr. Larkin, if we can, in this, uh, I think, relates to, to their diet. And... This kind of goes back to a, a program that I had, oh, I don't know, it's been probably a, a year or so uh, about manatees, when uh, one of your colleagues was describing a, an unusual mortality event. And, and this was something that was horrible to hear about because these, again, as we discussed at the top of the program, are cherished animals. They're they're gentle animals. They don't uh, ever do anybody any harm, and we think about them as being, I don't know, pretty, pretty, um, you know, vulnerable to, uh, you know, human interference. People can sometimes affect the lives of manatees. And this particular mortality event, though, I understood was related to, to access to food. Is, is did I have that right? Right. Absolutely. So um, along the East Coast um, in the Indian River Lagoon area, um, there uh, was essentially an ecosystem collapse of the seagrasses that are available to the manatees over there. Um, And some of that had to do with um, water quality um, within the lagoon area. Um, It's uh, a little high in nutrients, and uh, so a lot of um, harmful algal blooms had gone through the area and um, decimated a lot of the, the seagrasses. So 
Uh, they didn't have enough food available. And has this largely abated, or is there are manatees still at risk? Um, from what I understand, the, the most recent information that's come out has suggested that um, some of the seagrasses in the northern area of the lagoon are coming back. Um, it's a very large area. Uh, I know that there are a lot of efforts um, going on to try to um, help restore the water quality, uh, some of which includes um, introducing uh, clams um, and um, uh, trying to reintroduce or uh, replant some of the seagrasses in the in the areas. Uh, to help with water quality, um, but I know some of the challenges uh, are related to uh, to runoff um, and uh, um, you know just overall water quality. So it's it's something that is slowly improving, but it's not something that can be fixed overnight. It it takes a lot of uh, time and effort um, to to help uh, to fix this. When we say unusual mortality event. I mean, this was something that affected, what, hundreds of manatees, right? There were, the the loss was was significant? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the, um, the average uh, mortality that you might have uh, for manatees in a given year, um, you know, like over the, the last five years uh, was running around 650 animals or so. Um, but within... 2021, uh, which was the most impacted uh, year, um, they had uh, more than a thousand animals uh, die. Um, yeah, which are which it seems like a shockingly high number uh, because these are these are animals that have other uh, potential. Vulnerabilities. These are animals that people who've lived in Florida long enough know are they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable animals. Um, do we know about how many individuals there are in Florida at any given time? Um, they do um, population estimate counts. Uh, I know they are working on uh, doing one of those now. It, it takes a few years. Uh, for them to compile all of the data uh, to pull that together. Um, but the the last count, um, if I remember correctly, uh, was around um, six to 7,000 uh, individuals. So I don't know that I have seen any numbers um, since uh, the unusual mortality event began, um, partly because of COVID and the challenges in trying to um, uh, do some of these counts uh, because of all of all of the restrictions surrounding um, uh, COVID, but um, I they're working on on those numbers now, so they haven't been released yet. Now, aside from the loss of access to food, there are other challenges that manatees have faced, especially in Florida, for years and years now, and these often include unfortunate encounters with people and the accessories of people. Can you describe other risks that manatees face in the waters of Florida? 
Sure. Um, the largest human-related um, cause of manatee mortality is interactions with um, watercraft. Um, so whether that's um, being impacted by the propellers or um, being hit by the hull, uh, so blunt force trauma, um, both of which uh, have, you know, very serious consequences. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge. I, I think, um, I mean, when I first started studying manatees, there, the counts were around uh, 1,500 animals. And so the population has, has grown quite a bit. Um, but, of course, so has the human population around the state. So I, I feel that the, the strategic management strategies that the state has been um, working under uh, has been successful. Um, so the protect, protections that have been uh, put in place, you know, they, they have um, uh, so far very good um, results. Um, so I think as long as we can continue to provide them um, the support that they need, um, and uh, can be adaptive, you know, because the environment is, is dynamic, um, I think we can continue to, to support them. And some of those changes uh, have included what? Reducing boat speeds in places where manatees might be congregating. You mentioned the sort of Indian River Lagoon, and people know of this as sort of the intercoastal waterway there on the east coast of the state. And there are, as you say, more Floridians than ever before, and I would imagine that there are more watercraft than at any time in the past. And certainly people want to go out and enjoy the environment, but it, it seems like they number of watercraft out there could raise the risks for manatees, especially uh, a population that might already be under stress from, you know, reduced access to food. Uh, what can the average uh, person uh, do uh, to, to be aware of the problem and to maybe help make it easier for manatees to live in Florida? Um, yeah, the the best thing is to to follow the the signage on the waterways um, because to your point the the slow speed zones um, are usually pretty critical areas where um, it's a more narrow uh, passageway and uh, you know a lot of times um, that's not only safer for manatees but that's also safer for boaters um, so. Um, being able to um, follow those rules um, allows for more strategic uh, areas that the manatees can can travel. Um, you know, they they're in those waterways every day, all the time. That that's their home, so they they're very keenly aware of where the majority of boats are traveling, um, and you know, they for the most part know how to um, stay out of the way. Uh, but occasionally and, you know, in some more complex areas like bays where it may be um, a little bit more uh, challenging since there isn't a, a, a channel or a canal where, where most boats are traveling, um, then, uh, then it can be a little bit more risky traveling around trying to figure out um, which way a, a boat is going and at what point uh, do they need to, to move out of the way. The animals that live on the west coast of Florida, have they fared any better? Um, to some extent, yes. And, and part of that is um, the northwest um, 
part of Florida is a little less um, populated than um, southwest Florida. Um, but uh, animals in southwest Florida also have annual red tide events that impact them as well. Um, and those are naturally occurring events um, that occur uh, oftentimes um, impacting them just at critical times of the year when when they uh, need to go out and, and feed. So it, it can be very, very challenging, as anyone who lives on the West Coast knows. Um, they, they're familiar with red tide and, and how it can be challenging just to breathe when those events are going yeah. on. Yeah. For those who don't know, can you describe uh, red tide and, 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 you know, how it is both a kind of natural occurring, naturally occurring thing, but also one that can be pretty devastating to aquatic life? Right. So red tide is a harmful algal bloom that's caused by um, an organism that's referred to as Carinia brevis. Um, and when the, the small organism uh, is disrupted, it'll release this toxin. Um, the, the challenge with red tide is that, um, well, for manatees at least, it's on multiple levels because um, if if they're present but numbers are low, they could potentially settle in the seagrasses. And, of course, then the manatees may be eating them. Um, and so then you can have individuals that have issues with um, GI uh, disruption. Um, if there are really high numbers uh, and the water is, is um, choppy, uh, a lot of that um, toxin can be volatilized. So... Um, the highest concentration is going to be right there at the surface of the water, and that, of course, is where manatees and dolphins and sea turtles all come up to breathe right there. So they, they could be breathing high concentrations of, of the toxin. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly where these blooms uh, occur uh, can impact them. Manatees mostly live uh, in shallow coastal waters. Um, so as the bloom comes comes into shore, uh, that will impact them more. Um, but red tide uh, can impact everything, uh, humans along the beach, uh, seabirds, um, fish, uh, all, of, all of the animals um, are, are impacted. I think this is where we'll take our next break. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. My guest today from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Iska Larkin, and we're talking about the humble manatee, and we'll be back with more right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. And I'm Dana Hill. My guest from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Iska Larkin. And we're talking today about manatees. Uh, Dr. Larkin, the manatee, as we've been discussing throughout this program, has uh, many vulnerabilities. And I, I would hate to think that uh, climate change could add to their list of woes. Is it understood how a warming climate might affect manatees and, and their environment and their habitat? Um, 
we're still studying that. Um, there, there have been some some aspects that have been looked at, but um, because they are um, very sensitive to cold water temperatures, uh, since we're here in Florida in their northern range, um, warming waters here um, may actually uh, assist them to some degree. Uh, in that they may be able to expand their their range. Um, however, um, here in Florida, we are experiencing not only warmer summers, but some winters are are still very very cold. Um, so that that's a challenge for them to to find the warmer waters um, during the winter months. Um, beyond that, uh, I do know that. Um, when we are experiencing hurricanes and storm surge, manatees end up in areas uh, a lot of times they they shouldn't belong uh, because higher waters have given them access to canals or ponds or things along the coast, areas along the coast that they normally wouldn't be able to access. And so oftentimes um, our program uh, ends up getting called to um, – assist these manatees and uh, check on their health and, and put them back out in the in the river or, or in the, the Gulf or, or the ocean where they are supposed to be. Oh, what a, what a perfect segue. Uh, perfectly done. Um, let's talk about what, what can one do if a manatee ends up in a place it isn't supposed to be? Because this is a 2,000-pound animal. This isn't just like a, a couple guys reach in and, like, pick it up uh, and, and take it where – it needs to go. This is a, a mul- multiple people need to be involved here, but it has to be done with great sensitivity. I imagine that the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission probably has a has a stake in this, and they, they uh, want to make sure that this is done properly. and And a lot of people with uh, a great interest in manatees and maybe rehabilitation centers are, are sometimes involved. W- what goes into this? Right. So the the first thing that anybody can do is is call. Uh, they have a an eight hundred number. Um, it's one eight 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 four zero four FWCC or three nine two two. So that that's the the hotline for FWC, and uh, you can tell them where you are and what you see and what the animal is doing and and why you're concerned about it. Um, whether or not the animal uh, still appears to be alive or not, um, if it seems to have a tag on it, um, and, uh, you know, are there other manatees around? Um, so that's that's important information that uh, the, the state will want to know, and then they'll be able to reach out to partners uh, who can respond. Um, we have... Um, uh, a really great group um, that's called the MRP, which stands for the Manatee Rescue and Rehabilitation Partnership, um, and it consists of not only the state but also um, federal uh, partner as well as nonprofit, private uh, groups, and um, some of these groups include um, facilities that that do um, rescue and rehab. And uh, so phone calls will go out um, to see who can go out and sort of assess the situation uh, with what's going on with the manatee. Is it something that can be addressed right there in the water? 
uh, or do they need to have a team come out and um, and check on the animal, maybe disentangle it from something, or is it something more serious where the animal needs to be um, rescued and uh, brought to one of the critical care facilities? Um, there are uh, quite a, a large number of um, partners that um, are part of the MRP, and because of the unusual mortality event that those partnerships have actually been expanding, which is is really great, um, and uh, it's it's been um, uh, very helpful to um, monitor what's going on with the animals. Um, each of these facilities, um, whether they're critical care or um, uh, facilities that will hold animals until they are either a certain age or a certain size. Um, they'll they'll keep an eye on them until they're ready to be um, released back out into the wild. And then we have um, partners who will uh, monitor these animals post-release. Um, so if there are individuals of concern, uh, they'll put a tag on the animal um, and make sure that they're doing what manatees are supposed to be doing. So finding that fresh water source and that warm water source during the winter um, and making sure they're eating enough and, uh, you know, gaining enough weight and you know, not getting lost or, you know, swimming out to sea. Yeah. Um, this, this is a project that, as you point out, involves many, many people. Uh, and are the financial resources there? Um, do rehabilitation groups have the funding that they need? If you uh, have to care for a manatee that's been stranded or is is um, is ill, um, is it is it possible to kind of marshal the, the the resources that you need to help these animals? Um, well, for sure, the the MRP is always. Um, happy to take donations. Um, they have a website, um, so if, if you if you look up Manatee Rescue and Rehabilitation Partnership, you, you should be able to find them on the web. Um, the uh, various facilities that are part of the partnership, um, they they pay dues to be included in the partnership. Um, some of the facilities uh, do receive funding from the state to help support the care and rehabilitation of manatees. Um, ultimately, it's it's a partnership, so the funding they receive doesn't in cover all of the expenses. Um, if you consider trying to to feed a one to two thousand pound animal that eats anywhere from ten to twenty percent of their body weight in a day. Um, it takes a lot of food, uh, so it's it's very expensive just to to you know take regular care of of a healthy manatee. Um, so the additional ex expense of you know veterinary care and treatments uh, for manatees that have been impacted um, by you know all the mortality impacts that we talked about earlier: watercraft, cold stress, red tide. Um, all of those, it, it takes a it takes a big group to uh, come together and and to to help get these animals back out to the wild. With manatees and maybe some species of manatees, perhaps even being endangered, I don't know necessarily the conservation status of uh, the Florida manatee. But looking down the road into the future, what do what do you see uh, as being the 
key issues uh, affecting manatees? And do you think that the prospects look good for them or, or maybe are a little bit less favorable? Right. So that's that's a, a, a difficult question. Um, they, they recently, in 2017, were downlisted from endangered to threatened. Um, but with the unusual mortality event uh, that was going on on the East Coast, um, I think many of the managers are taking another look at um, the impacts of habitat and quality of uh, the environment in which they live and, and the extent to which that that um, may be negatively impacting them. Um, so, you know, water quality is important not only for manatees but for all of us. Um, so I think if, if, if we can help to maintain that, uh, that certainly helps manatees. Um, Long term, I feel like uh, a lot of important management uh, steps are are in place, uh, but because the environment is dynamic, uh, we need to be able to take uh, new information into consideration. Um, so uh, I feel like the, the groups that we work with, for the most part, um, work very well together, uh, and we're always learning more things about manatees. They're very unique uh, and uh, they, I feel like they teach us a little bit about ourselves, too. Well, Dr. Iska Larkin from the UF College of Veterinary Medicine, thank you so much for coming back on the program and for talking with me about manatees. These are animals that, as we say at the top of the program, so many people have good feelings about, and they certainly uh, don't cause us any harm. So we, we should all wish them well and, and do what we can to make uh, their environment a little bit uh, more habitable for them. And so thank you for being on the program again. You're most welcome. Thank you. I want us to thank you to Sarah Carey for her help with the program along with Amanda Buckley. And thank you all for listening. And I hope that you can join me again next week for another episode of Animal Airwaves Live. Bye-bye. <music> Thank mm-hmm. you.